Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome Greg Verdine, co-founder, president, CEO, and chairman of Fog Pharma, and president, CEO, and co-founder of LifeMind Therapeutics. Wonderful to have you on today, Greg. Well, thank you so much for the invitation, Rahul. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Well, Greg, this will take a while given your distinguished career, but we'd love if you could set the stage here and talk to us about how you got interested in biotech and really the arc of your career to get to where you are today. I really have to start back in southern New Jersey, where I grew up in the Pine Barrens, working with my dad, building boats, and didn't really intend to go to college. And through the force of an angel in my high school, ended up at St. Joe's College and had no idea what you really major in, because no one that I knew, no one in my family had been to college. So I majored in English. And that's actually served me pretty well, but I found it to be unbearable after a couple of years because I had to write all the time. And it just, I was the only English major who was taking organic chemistry and I loved it. And my organic chemistry professor pulled me in to the subject and I found it to be the right ecosystem for me. After that, I went to Columbia, to Columbia University to work in the natural products area. And when I was a third-year graduate student at Columbia, I got the call from Harvard to say, would you be interested to interview? God, I never even applied to Harvard because I thought I could never get in, I mean, let alone be a faculty member there. And I ended up doing a brief postdoc at MIT and Harvard and then Harvard Medical School. And then went to Harvard as a faculty member, and I just had no idea what I was doing. And so for the first 10 years, I was really figuring out how to run an academic research group doing purely curiosity-driven research. And along the way, I was invited to consult to Hoffman LaRoche, and they did the first high-throughput. They developed the capability to pull compounds out of a library and to do high-throughput screening, which had never been done before, and ran a massive survey of something like 35 targets, over a million compounds, screening all of those compounds with all these targets. And they came up with Zippo, nothing. This was the first time I had ever heard of this problem of undruggability. They just said, it's undruggable. And I thought, well, that's not acceptable. But it turned out that the vast majority of targets were undruggable. And it was only a small number of human targets, maybe as few as 5 or 10% that were druggable by small molecules. So at that point, I changed my entire research direction to say, this is an area where academics can really do something, is to say, okay, we're going to have to invent new kinds of drugs. And I set about inventing new kinds of drugs. And so I started a, a couple companies early on, which has a couple of drugs approved by the FDA, and especially in the HCV area, and then started working with venture groups and as an actual investor. And that was really quite remarkable. 
And then while I was on sabbatical from Harvard, I had the opportunity to actually run a couple biotech companies. And that was like a further evolution. And then finally, I retired from Harvard two years ago in order to run Fog Pharma and LifeMind. So I've had this entire arc of going from pure academic scientist to entrepreneur, then to investor, and then to company builder and company runner. And we'll see what comes next, Raul. I'm not quite sure what the next chapter is going to look like five years from now. Greg, if I could ask you to take a step back and yeah. think about, you know, when you were making that transition from academic scientist to then putting on the investor hat, and as you think about who you are now, how did that transition and exposure to the venture world round out your own approach to running biotechs now? If I go even further back than that, Rahul, what I found is when I was consulting for Hoffman LaRoche and Merck and Pfizer and so on, that I got this kind of mental separation from the day-to-day -day of my academic group that I often got really great ideas about how to pursue my academic science when I was off consulting. And that really taught me something that that's not a diversion, that it actually can enhance your academic career even. And then I got really serious about transitioning. In academics, you can only take things so far. Then to assemble a professional team that's going to pursue drug discovery, not as a curiosity-driven exercise, but in a really serious way. And that really led to wanting to found companies in a way that was much more direct. And that was what led me to becoming a venture partner initially at Apple Tree and then at TPG, Third Rock, which was just extraordinary, and then Wuxi Healthcare Ventures, because I wanted to have a more direct line of the companies that I wanted to start with the people who were investing in them. I still think up until the time I retired from Harvard that this fluidity between academic entrepreneur and founder and venture investor gave me a more complete picture of how to drive the science forward. I have to say, even though I've been CEO at multiple companies now, I believe that the appropriate description is really CEO, CSO. And that hybrid role is the one that really gets me most excited, where going back and forth between the science and the business, and they're synergistic with one another. And that's true, especially early in the history of platform drug discovery companies, which is a lot of what I've been focused on. Now, Raul, in the end, I I really felt that in order to do service to the companies that I needed to retire from Harvard. And so I arranged that I could run these two companies during the sunset years of my time at Harvard and then had a pre-programmed retirement. I do actually still miss teaching. <laughs> and so it wouldn't surprise anybody if I went back to just teaching one course because I got so much from that. Any particular course you particularly enjoyed teaching? My favorite course of all time was one that I taught early on with Vicky Sato at Harvard and one or two years with Mark Fishman and then a couple of years with Tony Wood, who is now the head of R&D for GSK. 
And then one year with Mark Bunich, he's the head of discovery research at Vertex. So I always co-taught my course. And it's a course in drug discovery and development. And this course was really amazing. So I would have professionals like Tony and Mark come in and talk about the blocking and tackling of drug discoveries. These are like senior undergraduates and first-year graduate students. And we would teach them what's development, what's patent law. Brenda Jarrell would come in and talk about patent law. And then what we would do is invite in the people across all of biotech and in some cases pharma who were doing the most interesting, most innovative, most exciting things. And almost everyone would say yes when asked to do that. So I could give myself a master course in drug discovery by giving this course to the students in Harvard. And there are still students now, several years after I stopped teaching it, who are still petitioning me to say, can you please come back and teach that course? Because I've heard that it was so amazing. It's a privilege. And many of the most prominent people in biotech today have taught that course. Chris Wiebacher just took over as CEO of Biogen. Chris Wiebacher came to speak in my course, for example, two weeks after he had been relieved of command at Sanofi. That's just one. I could give you a hundred examples like yeah, that. Yeah, quite the roster. I bet you missed. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, Greg, another question that comes to mind, given your entrepreneurial journey, is as you think about the first time you were in that founder CEO seat to now the most recent time. What's been the evolution in your own mental model around how you operate? If I can spare someone else this, the first one where I really stepped in and took on the full responsibilities of the CEO was Warp Drive Bio. So Alexis Borisi and I got the company up and running at Third Rock. That was a several-year process. Elias Zerhouni at Sanofi was really very instrumental in us getting the company and running. So Alexis ran it the first year. I then came in after the first year and ran it while I was on sabbatical at Harvard. I ran it sort of like everybody was my postdoc because I didn't know any better. I hadn't really learned how you do team science. I was still a bit in the imperial mode of running a scientific enterprise. And what I really learned is that doesn't work in biotech. Science is done by teams. You're just a member of the team and that you need to lead by inspiring rather than browbeating. Then I got Wave Life Sciences up and running, and I think I did a bit better there. It was a very small team. And then all those learnings about leading by inspiration, empowering teams, how do you find the young people in the organization who are so extraordinary so capable of upward movement, how do you put the resources behind them to enable them to flourish? And uh, how do you have direct conversations with people? And I grew up in a Catholic family, Irish. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. That doesn't work in biotech. It's not respectful to the people. So I really had to learn, and this is still a work in progress for me, how do you have that conversation with someone who's kind of getting in their own way and where mm. it stands in the path of their development. So I am a completely different person now mm. than I was in 2012, 13, when I stepped into Warp Drive, 
And I have to thank all the people in those companies who had frank conversations with me to let me know that it wasn't working for them. Yeah. Greg, now how do you approach a conversation like that where you're doing it for the benefit of the other person? What does that conversation look like typically now? Now it's in general, I think it's important to start, first of all, asking permission to the person that you want to have that conversation with, finding out what's the right environment to have it, the right physical environment. Sometimes it's you go walk out on the pathway here in the Hellwife rather than having it where I'm sitting on my side of the desk and they're sitting on theirs. But you need to ask permission, first of all. You need to have that conversation in a one-on-one setting, and you need to ask more questions than make statements. So leading from a question point of view, most people, I think, will be really honest and will tell you what they're struggling with. And you just have to make it really clear that no matter what happens, that you really care. Great advice. Wonderful. So you've been involved in a multitude of companies from the protein therapeutic space to peptide company, to two companies that are exploiting the natural world, to nucleic acid companies and so on. As you think about how you approach company creation, what's been the commonality or unifying theme across these various different endeavors that you've chosen to go down? Yeah, thanks. Ravel, for giving me the opportunity to answer that. I think some people might look at this and say, this is like a random walk through drug discovery. But there is actually an underlying theme that even starts as early as Ananta. And that is, I was struck by the fact that, let's say, with the onset of the diversity-oriented synthesis area, in small molecule drug discovery, let's say sometime in the 90s, you had this dichotomy in drug discovery that there was a whole group of people, mainly in the biologics area, which were exploiting the products of evolution. So if you look at antibodies, products of evolution, look at siRNA, products of evolution, look at gene therapy, products of evolution. And since then, now CRISPR, products of evolution, and so on and so on and so on. You had a whole part of the drug discovery world, which was focused on new modalities, 100% of which are some riff on a naturally occurring phenomenon or system or whatever. In the case of all those systems, there was an arc of discovering the modality. So we discovered antibodies, and then we said, okay, how does nature make an antibody? VGJ recombinations, somatic hypermutation, class switch recombination, right? And now what you do is you ditch all that and you forward engineer. So modality discovery, reverse engineering, forward engineering. We make antibodies now largely by forward engineering. That's true for every one of those. SIRNA, antisense, CRISPR is an engineered evolutionary system. CAR-T, engineered evolutionary system. Viruses, therapeutic viruses. Now, That's one side of the world. If you look at the other side of the world, I promise I'll get to the points in, but you look at the other side of the world, the small molecule drug discovery, what are they doing? They're going in exactly the opposite direction, in the increasingly synthetic abiotic direction and repudiating biology and evolution by saying, we're going to stop working on natural products. 
And that seemed to me to be missing the opportunity. Let's just say it seemed to me to be missing the opportunity to take advantage of what evolution had to offer. So if you look at this whole string of companies that have come of late, they all have an element of modality discovery in the case of warp drive, molecular glues that are related to FK506, rapamycin, and cyclosporin. Okay. Discovering them, learning how they work, what makes them tick, and then figuring out how to forward engineer them. We drove that entire arc at Warp Drive. And now after Warp Drive was merged into Revolution Medicine, there are three drugs in the clinic now that come from forward engineering of that phenomenon of molecular glues using a natural paradigm. If you look at wave life sciences, it was how do we make nucleic acid therapeutics more effectively? Well, recognize that they needed to be single pure entities. So the forward engineering there involved how do we, instead of them being a half a million compounds, how do we make them pure so that you can optimize them? You can maximize their half-life tissue penetration and all that. If you look at Fog Pharma, I asked the question, okay, if we want to make a new class of molecules that are polypeptides, what shape should it have? If we want to combine the best features of biologics, which is the ability to bind almost anything with the cell penetration of small molecules, it's going to have to probably be a polypeptide. So what kind of shape should it be? Ah, well, if it's going to go through a membrane, it has to be alpha helical. There's no other example in biology. The only things that are embedded in membranes are helical. There are alpha helices and beta helices. That's it. No other fold. So then forward engineer them, right? How do you stabilize a helix? And then how do you discover them? And then life mind is the same kind of thing, like learning how evolution works in the fungal world and using that to create an engine that can basically source things that are very, very close to a drug directly out of nature because fungi have been doing medicinal chemistry for a billion years. So there is this whole narrative that runs through all of these companies of modality discovery, starting from evolution, reverse engineering, forward engineering. Hmm. That's the unifying principle. I had never thought of that common thread across all of these companies, Greg. So glad you provided that insight. What's it been like running two companies for six years? And how do you even structure your day and your week to be able to operate two companies that were high growth companies for that period of time? Well, I should say I've been fortunate to have a co-founder and co-operator whose name is Weiching Zhou, Z-H-O-U. And so I've had a very close partner really handling a lot of the operations of the two companies. And she's just extraordinary. So that's made my life a lot easier and allowed me to really focus on the science and then building the business. I have to say that there are times when, first of all, running two companies has been extraordinarily rewarding that I've had the opportunity and had the investors and the board and the finances to pursue two dreams simultaneously. I have to be thankful for having had that privilege and, and that opportunity, and I'm extremely thankful for it. Now, there are times like the last year when that's felt pretty stressful. We raised 
$175 million round and closed a deal with GSK in the dawning hours, day, months of 2022, and then raised in November for Fog Pharma, $178 million financing round, all under rather, you know, where the external environment really made it more difficult than it would have been even a year earlier. I should say also, Rahul, that for those of us who navigated our way through COVID, we kept both companies running throughout the entire COVID period. And we did that because the employees agreed that, you know, cancer patients are still in dire need. And COVID, if anything, makes that worse because a lot of cancer patients are immune compromised and we have an obligation to keep going. And so we got everyone to agree on that. But in the early going, you'll remember it was pretty stressful. Now, what made it work for these two companies is that they are co-located in a single building, which has individual floors that are occupied by the people from one company or the other, and then a shared sixth floor where there's some common facilities. And my day is I ricochet back and forth between Fog Pharma and LifeMind without any imposition to say, oh, Mondays are for one company, Tuesdays are for the other. My days generally extend into the evening and they almost always extend into the weekend as well. And, and I'm fine with that. People are creative in the ways that we get together. So for example, sometimes we have company meetings on my boat in Boston, get three or four people together to have ideation sessions because it's a great environment. So if I showed you my calendar, which I will right now, color-coded, is, is one company, one's gray, one's blue, and then orange, orange is you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can see that I go back and forth between all of them. The one real, I have to say, challenge is that it is hard finding the kind of time that I should have to go out there, connect with other people, you know, outside of these two companies to continue my learning adventure. I still read the literature, but I read it in a way that I would previously consider to be shockingly superficial. I still cover the literature pretty comprehensively for both companies, but I find that that's maybe the biggest challenge is finding time to go deep in new and emerging science. Yeah. And I imagine that in the early days of company formation, when you're five people to 50 people, your role changes quite a bit as well. I'm curious how you think about that switch and to make sure that you're making that switch when you're going from five to 50 yeah. with the expediency, but with the care that's required of making that own shift in terms of what your role is. It's really true. Like you have to evolve with the company and that's really critical. I think of it almost like an expedition. In LifeMind, we really do. Like when Lewis and Clark went on the expedition to chart the path from Mississippi River all the way to the West Coast, they really had no idea what they were going to encounter along the way. They'd heard reports of they, they didn't even know whether there was a single, you could take the Columbia River all the way through the Continental Divide. So they had to bring along a group of people that were not hyper-specialized, that were kind of hyphenated. And they had to adapt to the situation on the ground as they experienced it. 
And that's really what doing the startup from the ground up is exactly that. You're fording the streams and charting the course. And you, as the leader, have to lead no matter what the circumstances allow. And all of these companies go through cycles where of ups and downs and people having high levels of confidence and maybe lower levels of confidence and spasms of people leaving and having to hire new people. So in the case of Fog Pharma, we had really the A1 round was $5 million, something less than $5 million. And the entire round was $11 million. And so we all had to wear all kinds of hats. And then as the company raised more money and it became, the technology became more proven, it became much more possible to hire really, really good people. And we have really had to pay attention to that process of renewal and whenever possible, bringing on board people who would really help to advance the science. And what helped to get the company to the stage that it is right now is that relentless drive to always, for example, using any turnover as an opportunity to upgrade people in the company. You Mm. must absolutely do that. And then I, of course, need to turn over more control, let's say, of the science to the team as that team gets more and more senior, more and more accomplished me as the boss or one has to then give them space and give them room and to trust them. And if you don't trust them, you shouldn't be working with them. Mm. So now if you ask going forward, don't think I will ever do another company that I start with $11 million because it imposes an artificial challenge in a way of hiring those really great people. They would like to have more of a sense of stability and a, a couple of years, two to three years of runway. And going forward, I would really do it quite differently. And that mm-hmm. is to bring on board multiple people who can take the burden off of me and take the burden off of Wei Ching as well as you build the company. So then the challenge is a little bit different. It's if you've got all this money, how do you still maintain the appropriate level of frugality? Being frugal is important for biotech companies because the money is so hard to come by. We don't have a profit stream. And Mm -hmm. so that level of discipline is just really important for biotech companies. How do you make a great working environment, enable everything that you want to do, but also make it so that everyone values all of the capital that you've all been entrusted with? And Greg, you know, to that point, you've had the ability to raise a bunch of money in a challenging environment. How has your approach to fundraising changed from the first time around to where you are now? How do you view that activity and exercise to best position the company? And how is that different from when you first did it? It is shockingly more similar than it is different. And I believe that the investors who collaborate with me. And no, we're fortunate to have extraordinary, the best of the best in both companies. And they all have a vision that they want to change the world. And of course, it's important to have deep financial plans and understand where you're going to deploy the money. What's the value creation look like? But the purpose of all of this is to change the world, period. 
And so the investors that I've been fortunate to work with all have that drive and vision. So now I've gotten better, I think, at saying, okay, here's what I think it's going to take to enable changing the world. And, and that includes really learning how to speed it up. Early on, I chronically underestimated how long it was going to take to do certain things. Chronically. I mean, Elon Musk has done that too, but so I should be kind of easy on myself. But maybe all of us do because we're fundamentally optimists. Drug discovery is so challenging and so fraught with failure that I think we all have to be optimists. But how do you balance that event evangelism with realism? So early on, I was much more evangelical and to the extent of almost living in an alternative reality. Now, what's really different is that I still have that evangelism and, and, and I don't think anyone's going to invest in my companies if they don't think that we are incredibly passionate about what we're doing. But it's tempered more now with a realism about look, here's what I think is a probable scenario, but here are other scenarios and here's how we're going to deal with them. If things do take longer or if we get sent a curveball on a novel target or whatever. So I've just become a lot better at thinking through not just plan A, but plan B, plan C. But I still believe that that passion to change the world is the fundamental thing that gets anyone interested. And that has not changed, Ravel, right? It's even gotten more because people have seen that a lot of the companies that are really failing now are ones that were engaged in financial engineering or licensing a late-stage product or whatever, and they had no robustness. Companies that develop a drug discovery engine, if they get it right, it accelerates, it learns from its mistakes, it navigates its way out of rabbit holes. And I think people, every once in a while I hear people say, oh, platforms are out of fashion. That's utter nonsense. Binary bets are out of fashion. But we, as leaders of a company, have to learn how to make it go faster, how to get to robustness how to avoid turning a platform company into a binary bet. The only reason that happens is because you went too slow. A platform company gets turned into a binary bet because that platform company went too slow. So that's hopefully, Raul, you know, I'm still an evangelist, but I have also tempered that with being much more of a realist. Yeah, certainly. To the point of running fast, and in many ways, one of the key competitive advantages that any biotech has is the ability to run faster and create more value in a shorter period of time. What have you seen that resonates with your team in terms of that sense of urgency? You know, you mentioned you've gone away from browbeating. So what works for you now? If you look at both, well, go all the way back to wave life sciences, what we said is, look, this field has a problem. That problem is holding back the promise of this entire area. What's the problem? The drugs are half a million compounds. And that's not a drug that you should be administering to a human patient. Drugs should be pure. Drugs should be a single entity. And so if you can summarize it as simply as that, you can get everyone on board to hurl themselves at that mission and make it happen. If you look at Warp Drive, there we said if only 5 to 10% of all intracellular targets are druggable, 
we're leaving patients in the lurch because there's this biology has screamed ahead of our science, let's say the science of molecular interventions. Biology has so outpaced us. We got to figure out how to get at these targets that are increasingly well understood, but are beyond the reach of our area. So there it was, okay, let's turn to nature and let nature teach us how to drug undruggable targets. You know, I coined this term, drugging the undruggable, like in the late 1997 or eight or nine or something like that. And I was serious about it. I meant we really have to learn how to do that because otherwise we're not really patient-centric. If we're telling patients, I'm sorry, but 90% of the disease-driving proteins are beyond the reach of our therapeutics. So I think just having that simple crystalline founding narrative that says, this is who we are. This is why we're here. This is how we're going to do it. It's not going to be easy. You have to be honest with people that this might not happen if you don't make it happen. And then more recently than similar situation, you know, in the early days of Fog Pharma, we made a decision that we're going to drug a protein called beta-catenin. And beta-catenin has been known for 35 years or so as a major driver of colorectal cancer, but it's become clear some more than 80% of colorectal cancers are driven by genetic aberrations that activate this driver oncogene, beta-catenin. And we said, okay, we're going to drug that. And people have tried to drug it using conventional small molecules. We're going to drug it. Along the way, what we discovered is as we look at the patient numbers more carefully in the emerging genetic picture is that mutations in cancer that all activate beta-catenin are the single most prevalent driver of human cancer. Everyone's very focused on RAS, but the prevalence of activating mutations that lead to activation of beta-catenin is considerably higher than the prevalence of activating mutations in RAS. It is the most prevalent oncogene. And so we said, all right, come hell or high water, we're going to drug this protein. And in the history of Fog Pharma, we had two false starts at drugging it. And we had to say, all right, we're in a rabbit hole. We're going to back out of that rabbit hole. We're going to start all over again. Okay, we're in a rabbit hole again. We're going to back out of that rabbit hole or we're going to drug it all over again. Why? Because there are two and a half million patients in the United States alone, give or take, whose cancer is driven by this. And it is simply unacceptable that we would say to them, sorry, that's undruggable. And then earlier on in Warp Drive, I said, we're going to drug RAS. That's the second most prevalent oncogene. And that's up to us as leaders. And I'm sure you do this at Plura that you have a simple, here's why we're here. Here's what we're doing. If it was worth doing on day one, it's worth doing right now. Stay the course, be intrepid, figure it out. Yeah, certainly resonates, Greg. That's wonderful advice. So Greg, talk to us now about how things are going at FOG, some of the recent exciting changes that you've been making as well, and where you are from a clinical development perspective. So FOG was spun out of my lab at Harvard. And I spun myself out along with my technology. And the small team of people, the person who I think has been most influential is John McGee, who heads DeNovo Discovery at Fog 
Pharma, a real extraordinary young person. So when we set out to build the company, we said, let's move this technology out into a biotech company. Let's figure out how to really deploy it broadly. Let's figure out how to use it to go after any target. And the core technology is hyper-stabilized alpha helical polypeptides. So these are polypeptides that are anywhere from 10 to 20 amino acids in length that are constrained into an alpha helical structure. And that tremendously facilitates their ability to engage targets and also their ability to cross through cell membranes. So we have built a comprehensive engine to stabilize alpha helices and the company to discover them initially by phage display. So that's hit discovery, phage display using hyperstabilized helices that we call helicons, and then how to optimize them by multiplex, multi-parameter screening, where we're not doing single compound, screen a single compound, but where we're making large numbers, as many as 25,000 compounds in the space of six months and screening them. The most advanced program there is a direct inhibitor of beta-catenin. So this is what I was just talking about, the most prevalent oncogene. And this works in a very particular way. It's kind of a precision medicine within a precision medicine because beta-catenin interacts with many other partners. It has many different effects on cell physiology. We first began by asking, what's the best site to target on beta-catenin? We found that it's a site that interacts with the transcription factor that is downstream of beta-catenin. That's called TCF4. So we dialed in a hit molecule that would block, bind beta-catenin and specifically block TCF4. And then we optimize those molecules now to the stage where we have very compelling animal data that this thing has profound anti-tumor effects and where it's very clearly on mechanism on target. So the IND for that till FOG001, the first molecule, will be filed in a couple of weeks, maybe 10 days or so. And then we expect to initiate clinical testing in the, uh, let's say, June timeframe. So that's very exciting. There is a whole pipeline of additional helicons that target other driver oncogenes right now that are moving their way along toward in vivo validation and then toward the clinic. So it seemed to me that having established this entire capability, gotten to the first IND, gotten to first patient being treated, that this was a good time for me to turn over the reins to an individual who could take the company through the next phase of its development. So someone who deeply understands discovery, but also understands development, commercialization, understands the biotech market writ large, understands portfolio balancing, understands disease management, disease, understands data science. So you can imagine how difficult it was to find someone who ticks off all of those boxes. And lo and behold, toward the end of last year, initially through an interesting interaction involving Rick Klausner, who led our Series D financing as a very, very close friend, co-founder of Warp Drive with me earlier. He began a conversation with someone that I've known for years and years and years, is a very close friend, Metai Mammon, who has just stepped down as head of R&D Johnson, before that, was head of discovery research 
for Merck. And before that, built from scratch, employee number one, Theravance, built a biotech company. So Matai is, I always tell people in the company, you should hire someone who's better than you are. And so when I went out to hire my replacement as CEO, I walked that walk. And we all, not just me, but the employees, the board, all managed to convince Matai that this was the place for the next stage of his career. And now, as of the middle of June, I pivot to being a vice chair with Matai being chairman and CEO, president of the company. And I'll move into a role that I'm available to help the company and help Matai in any way that would be impactful. Hmm. That's the Fog Pharma story. A bit about a year after Fog Pharma, I founded LifeMind. And that is a company that is learning, it is basically mining medicines from fungi by searching for drugs in genomic space. This is really absolutely remarkable that you can start with a human target, search a collection of 100,000 wild-type fungal genomes that have been deep sequenced, and predictably find a set of biosynthetic genes that encodes a molecule made by nature that hits that human target. This is a complete reinvention of the discovery of natural molecules. And you might ask, why fungi? Well, fungi are 60% or so identical to humans. So the molecules that fungi have been evolving cross over to hit the homologous human target, if there is a homologous target in humans. So I'm continuing on and actually pivoting a lot of my attention to the next stage of the development of LifeMind as we pick programs that we're going to drive to the clinic. I'm curious now, as you think about this next phase for you in the coming months, when you put on that hat of vice chair, have you started to think a bit about where you'll need to obviously pull back and where perhaps you'll need to provide a broader perspective? And, and how do you think about navigating something that is effectively your baby now being put in the hands of somebody else? It is really important that bit of the role that Phil Sharp played at Biogen is always being there, being available, but it's up to the company at that point to let you know how you can be most impactful. I stand ready to do that. Just to be specific about it, with FOG, I think what would be exciting for me and would be helpful to the company is really to focus on continuing to optimize the hit-to-lead discovery engine so that we could make it go faster. It's already really remarkably fast. It's mm -hmm. also scalable, which is the first drug discovery, small molecule drug discovery engine that I've seen that's actually scalable where a small company could prosecute four targets, five targets simultaneously with a relatively small group of people. But that's where I feel is kind of going back to my roots in chemistry to help the chemistry team focus on how to make the engine even more powerful as Matai will then focus his attention on the remainder of company building and on the clinical development of FOG001 and on really deciding strategically, where should we be aiming this very powerful, that will no longer, of course, I'll have a voice on the board, 
But we brought on board Mattia because of his extraordinary vision, his extraordinary strategic capabilities. And so I think it's important for me and also for the company to recognize that I'm not running the show anymore and I'm here as basically, a, you know, as a consultant. Yeah. So I liken this to the dad who raises lovingly his children and let's say his daughter and very close relationship, special relationship. And then at some point in that daughter's life, it's time for her to get married and for you to walk her down the aisle. And I'm walking fog down the aisle right now. And I'm <laughs> looking forward to that relationship with the adult fog pharma. Yeah, we'll have to bring the groom on to the podcast at some point too. <laughs> <laughs> it's about, in some cases, you get your dream groom for yeah. your, and that's what happened with me. Well, Greg, before we let you run, would ask you to reflect for one more minute. And you know, given all that you've seen and all the tremendous experiences that you've had to date, what's one piece of advice you wish you could provide your younger self, knowing all that you now know and have experienced? Earlier on, even in my academic career and my early entrepreneurial career, you know, I had a tendency to want to always chase the next shiny object rather than saying, okay, well, that object that I found was shiny, just as shiny now as it was then, but it needs polishing continuously. And so I had a tendency to kind of jump around, fog my curiosity. When you're an academic, you can get away with that. And it might even be a plus. When you're in a company, you really have to become obsessed with making that company successful. And if you're viewed as always looking around the corner for something else, how in the world could you ever expect the people in the company to take you seriously? I'll give Wei Ching some credit for giving me this advice too, to say, hey, Greg, really skinny down the number of things that you're doing and pick Fog and Life Mind and drive those things to the realization of their full potential. That's what I did, Rahul, in Fog and Life Mind. And I think it, that has really borne fruit. So if I could go back to my younger self, I would say, hey, focus. Great. Well, Greg, on that salient advice, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was a treat to have you on and, and look forward to obviously continuing to follow the important work that you're pursuing at LifeMine and Fog and then having Mathai on as well. Thank you, Ro. I really appreciate Thanks. it. You've been a wonderful conversation. You're amazing. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.